Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, and thank you for being here with us. Uh, We hope you are doing well. We have a very special guest today, and that is Dr. Casey Luskin. From he is the associate director uh, of the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute, which we are obsessed with over here at the C.S. Lewis Society. Uh, so, Casey, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's great to be with you guys. Absolutely. And Dr. Woodward, I know we, we've been talking about this. We're excited to have uh, Casey Luskin on here today. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, and I'm throwing a party because this is the first time, I think, in, well, I won't say how many years, it's been more than three, that I've ever actually had to have had the opportunity for us to have on our program Casey Luskin. He was a regular uh, commentator on all things under the umbrella of intelligent design and uh, problems with neo-Darwinism. Some of you may remember back in the period when we start, started the program, we're talking about the year 2007, basically that Casey was, uh, whenever we had a tough one to investigate, I would call on Casey. You remember those good old days, Casey? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun being with you over the years uh, on your show, Tom, and I'm, I'm uh, thankful to be back and after all these years, be back again. Yes, well, I know you've been busy studying geology and you just achieved a milestone and we'll talk about that in a minute, but I want to just mention that we do have coming up here on the 18th of February, I want to kind of do a a shout out to our team at the C.S. Lewis Society who's put together an amazing uh, combination. We have coming together Sean McDowell, the son of Josh McDowell, and Sean, of course, is author of many books, and he is an outstanding speaker on a wide range of topics under the bigger umbrella of apologetics. Well, Sean will be with us for our February 18th virtual banquet coming up. That's on a Thursday night. And anybody who wants to just go on to apologetics.org can click the link at the top and that'll take you right to the banquet page so you can read all about it and you can actually sign up to get the link so that that night on February 18th, Thursday night at about seven o'clock. We're going to start a little little, little pre-show at 6.45. You can jump in and be a part of Sean McDowell, myself, Dave Engelhard, Ginny Zemitis with our 7x7 program. And we have with us Dr. Steve Meyer giving a little preview of his outstanding, much anticipated book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, coming out in late March. Well, he's going to give us like a month ahead of time preview of the excitement building for that book. And we actually have Keith and Kristen Getty with us that night. They're taping for us for C.S. Lewis Society three songs in kind of the midsection of the program and then a final song at the end. So in honor of their amazing achievement, I have selected a song. Let's go ahead, Nick, and bring that in right now so we can hear this amazing contribution from Keith and Kristen Getty. Speak, oh Lord. As we come to you to receive the food of 
take your truth planted deep in us shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith speak oh lord and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory listening to the the flow of the music and the lyrics, I was just thinking how powerful the ground, the foundation that we have in apologetics of Scripture itself, where the very words of God are bringing powerful truth to us, and then we can test it. We can actually compare it with the world around us and see that the word and the world match beautifully. So speak, O Lord. Uh, the lyrics are available, of course, if you just Google uh, Keith and Kristen Getty, and then the name of the uh, song, Speak, O Lord. You can just uh, look up the lyrics and just uh, revel in them, exult in them, bathe in their beauty and their power. Well, speaking of the beauty of nature and the power of uh, nature speaking to us, uh, 
Casey Luskin, give us a little capstone summary of your journey over the last half year, half, uh, what, a dozen years or five years, was it, that you made a move over to uh, Johannesburg area in South Africa. I don't know if you want to just mention a little bit of your research there and then you, that you've now come back to Discovery Institute. Give us an overview of what's happened. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I left uh, Discovery Institute at the very end of 2015 to fulfill a goal that I'd really had my whole life, which is to go back to school and get a PhD in geology. And uh, so at the beginning of 2016, I entered a PhD program at the University of Johannesburg in geology and uh, began uh, what became a very arduous uh, four to five years of uh, completing a PhD. Um, basically, my, my research focused on a, a group of rocks called the Pongola Supergroup. Um, it's very old rocks that are from the Archean uh, on a, a part of Earth's crust called the Catfall Craton. It's thought to be one of the oldest portions of continental crust on the Earth. And I was able to uh, study the paleomagnetism of those rocks in order to infer some of the early plate tectonic history of South Africa and where it was located. And our ultimate goal in the project was to test a hypothesis that um, through plate tectonics in the past, South Africa may have been connected to Western Australia. And uh, we were able to uh, test using paleomagnetism whether that was a potentially valid hypothesis that there was once a supercontinent of, of Southern Africa and Western Australia. And we found that, in fact, uh, that hypothesis uh, was supported by our research. Wow. Well, that's one way of developing kind of the, the um, uh, arduous point of, you know, testing a very controversial proposal and then bring it under the scrutiny of the evidence uh, and bring, then bringing that judgment. That the judgment call must have been uh, quite a, a tricky thing. Did you have a, a number of colleagues working with you? Yeah, well, I mean, it was my project for the PhD, but I certainly had uh, some wonderful colleagues there um, in the department who were part of our lab. Uh, my research, by the way, really did not have anything to do with intelligent design, mm -hmm. Tom. Uh, it was not really related to that. And my my colleagues there, uh, I mean, they knew about my intelligent design views and so forth, but it wasn't really something that came up very much. Uh, this was, I would say, uh, very se separate from intelligent design, right. the research that I was doing. But yeah, basically, uh, uh, Basically, I got assigned the project, which meant that I got to spend um, numerous hours spent in a small windowless room uh, measuring rocks day in, day out, uh, you know, sometimes spending the night there, wee hours of the morning. It, it wasn't always a lot of fun. I'm not going to lie. It was sometimes yeah. pretty arduous, but uh, you do a lot of work um, and then eventually you get a result and there is a payoff because in the end you get to test your hypothesis. So I think something I learned from this experience, well, I mean, I already knew this, but it's one of those things where you really don't appreciate it until you do it. And that is that science is not easy. It takes a lot of work to, uh, to do the research. You have a lot of, of ups and downs, uh, days where you feel like you're, you know, you really are, you're on cloud nine and other days where you feel like you just can't get anywhere. In fact, more like sometimes you get weeks and months where you just feel like you're banging your head against the wall with not much success. But eventually you find uh, results that actually you can make sense of and, and you get some data and you get a result. So that's yeah, cool. it's, it's that, that's science for you right there. Well, that's amazing. And, and I want to just say that, Nick, if you want to jump in at any point, feel free to ask your, your question that's uh, occurring, you know, that's popping into your head. But let me just ask you that as you come back in 
after kind of like sending you out on orbit or maybe like a mission to Mars, think of it that way. And you, and you did your exploration of your own area, that kind of uh, scientific niche. And then when, when somebody, if they were to come back from a Martian uh, voyage and then get back to the earth, they would see how things have changed or maybe they're just the same. So now that you, as it were, come back in the orbit and you're, you're kind of uh, not picking up where you left off, but you're able to see how intelligent design, the theory is now compared to, let's say a decade ago or even five years ago, um, do you see intelligent design as healthier and more robust than ever? Is it struggling? Give us a kind of a, how's it going from your catbird seat? Yeah, I definitely see that intelligent design has grown and uh, it was healthy when I left and I would say it's even healthier than it was uh, now that I'm back. Um, there's been uh, some really exciting developments in peer-reviewed scientific papers that have come out um, either supporting ID or sort of expanding intelligent design hypotheses. And I wrote about some of these in an article I, I posted on Evolution News uh, recently, sort of reviewing my, my take on how ID has progressed over the last few years. Um, but one uh, paper that stood out to me that was published soon after I left to do the PhD was in 2016. It was an article uh, published by Scott Minnick, um, a pro-ID microbiologist at the University of Idaho. And he and his team published an article in the Journal of Bacteriology, which tested this uh, claim by Richard Lenski, who is a uh, professor at the University of Michigan, where he has these long-term evolution experiments where they basically have many generations of E. coli, e. coli bacteria trying to see if those bacteria will eventually evolve something new. And at one point he claimed that yes, they did evolve something new. They evolved the ability to uptake citrate as a new source of food. Well, uh, Minnick and his team investigated this claim and put it to the test biochemically and found that actually nothing new really had evolved. Um, first of all, these E. coli bacteria already had the ability to feed off of citrate. Um, what they did evolve, however, was the ability to uptake citrate under new conditions and then uh, metabolize citrate under new conditions. But what really happened at the molecular level to allow this quote unquote evolutionary trait to evolve? Well, what actually happened was at the molecular level, a switch had been broken which basically prevented the citrate, up, uh, the citrate uptake pathway from being suppressed. So at the molecular level, it came down to breaking something, and then they were overexpressing a couple of protein pumps that already existed. So they were just making more of something they already had. So rather than evolving something new, it was really um, just making more of something you already had and breaking something at the molecular level. And in fact, Minnick's paper, which was published in the Journal of Bacteriology, um, came to the conclusion that, quote, no new genetic information had evolved. And I thought it was great to see this after this widely touted um, evolutionary uh, adaptation uh, from Richard Lenski's experiments. And here now we have a paper uh, being published by an ID-friendly scientist in a very reputable journal that at the molecular level, they found that nothing new had evolved at the genetic level. I thought that was very significant. Um, so, so, so in other words, the, the party, the woohooing from the Darwin side is sort of like, uh, like not, not, not sustained by, by the findings and the analysis of Scott Minnick and his team. Yeah, once they actually dug into the genetic details of what had happened, they found that it was not something new that had evolved, that it's, this trait already existed, and they just broke a few features and made a few things, uh, uh, a few 
made a few more copies of something they already had so that that trait could now be expressed under a different set of conditions. But really nothing new had evolved. That's well, right. Did, Len did Lenski reply to this or was there a thundering silence from Lenski and his group? Um, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn here. I'm not 100% sure if Lenski did reply at the top of my head. Yeah. That's probably something I need, I need to go back and, and, and look at. Yeah. But I do know that the Journal of Bacteriology published a little review piece, a summary piece of Minnick's research that was very positive and very praiseworthy about it. And so it definitely did get a positive reaction from other folks in the scientific community. Wow, that is a huge progress point. That is a huge step forward. Thank you. Thank you for updating us on that. I mean, I remember that Michael Behe and his book, Darwin Devolves, uh, was bringing out in this whole general theme. Can you kind of recap the, the power and the strength of both Darwin Devolves and Dr. Behe's newest book, A Mousetrap for Darwin? Yeah, that, that's right, Tom. I would say that what Minnick found was very much in the spirit of Michael Behe's 2019 book, Darwin Devolves. Um, in that book, Michael Behe argued that when we there, that there are sometimes evolutionary adaptations that happen at the molecular level through Darwinian evolution. But again, when you kind of drill down into the details of what's going on, you find that at the molecular level, they're actually breaking things or simply or, or diminishing the functionality of things. So they're not actually creating new functional features at the, at the molecular level. Um, so Michael, some people might say, well, how could it be that breaking something could actually be an adaptation in a Darwinian sense? Mm -hmm. And Michael B. gives the example of, let's say you have a car and you want it to run uh, get better gas mileage. Well, you could perhaps get that car to have better mileage by uh, taking off the side view mirrors. Uh, maybe you could um, uh, take off the roof racks and maybe you could even uh, throw out the back seat and get rid of some parts that are weighing it down and making the car so it's not quite as uh, energy efficient. Well, sure, you're going to make the car more energy efficient if you get rid of that dead weight, but you're certainly not creating any new parts or new components in doing this. And the same thing Behe found can happen at the molecular level where sometimes it can be advantageous at an evolutionary level to actually break things or diminish the functionality of certain features. And, um, and he found after reviewing many examples from the mainstream scientific literature of the way that evolutionary adaptations occur, that typically they are breaking things and they're not actually evolving new features at the molecular level. And let me just break in and, and say that we're talking about DNA and a DNA is a very interesting code. And, uh, and just, if you could just give us your honest take on the effort of our twin sister organization, dnaandbeyond.org, which has produced now a DNA model. And I think we're in the process of shipping you, or maybe we already did, <laughs> help me on this, uh, the tRNAs and the amino acids. Uh, I, I get the impression you enjoyed reviewing those and you find them helpful if you don't mind mentioning Oh yeah, that. no. Uh, so one of the first things that happened, Tom, when I first came back to the United States in 2020 um, was uh, you and I got in touch about this uh, product that you've created, DNA and Beyond. It's basically, I, it's somewhere in my office here and I have to dig it out. It's basically a magnetically connected two double strands of DNA and you can take them apart and sort of show how uh, DNA is connected with these nucleotide bases and how you can uh, change the order of the bases and, and, and sort of illustrates how DNA works. And I'll say this, 
because of COVID, I've not been giving very many in-person presentations lately, Tom, but as soon as COVID ends and I'm sort of back out there giving talks and I need visual teaching tools again, I can guarantee you I'll be using your DNA and Beyond uh, uh, product when I give talks to explain how DNA works. It's a really nice visual tool and teaching tool for showing how DNA, uh, how it works and how the nucleotide bases come together. Thank you very much for that uh, encouraging report. And I'm going to pass that along to the president, Stefan uh, Joseph. Uh, he's a great guy and from Trinidad originally. His dad is still there and, and he's doing a gangbuster job of uh, bringing it to the public schools and the homeschoolers and private schools and universities around the whole world. So it's pretty exciting. So let me just give that DNA and beyond, spell out the word and, like bed, bath and beyond, except in this case, it's DNA and beyond. A lot of people laugh at that point. Yeah, dnaandbeyond.org. Thank you so much, for Casey, for uh, your uh, use of it and the present and the future. But let's go back to, we've got about, what, four minutes left, uh, I think, uh, something like that, Nick? Yeah, four minutes. Yeah, I'd say so in the four minutes, let's go ahead and talk about two or three really cool things that you see just exploding with encouragement and, and teaching moments from Michael Behe's work. Sure. So, so Michael Behe, in his book, Darwin Devolves, one of the main lines of evidence that he cited that at the, at the molecular level, evolutionary adaptations are actually breaking things was polar bear genes. And he cited a study which looked at the, these polar bear genes and did sort of a bioinformatics study of these genes and found and predicted that they had actually degraded. Yet these genes were, under, were undergoing natural selection. So they had been selected for some kind of a function in polar bears, but yet they were being degraded at the molecular level. And the research speculated that these genes probably have something to do with helping polar bears to process the very high fat diet that they eat. Um, you know, they often will eat seals and which have a lot of blubber and they have to have some way of dealing with that high cholesterol diet. And they thought that somehow actually degrading uh, these genes was allowing polar bears to eat these very fatty um, animals and have a and yet still have a lower cholesterol diet than you would expect otherwise. So Behe's critics um, immediately sort of jumped on this and said, well, that makes no sense. How could breaking something, uh, you know, reduce cholesterol? And they said, clearly, we have to be enhancing the function of these genes that reduce cholesterol from the blood rather than actually breaking them. This can't be right. And so, uh, you know, we, we decided at Discovery Institute, me and some friends, uh, this couple years ago, and, and at the time, I, I took a couple days and sort of just, uh, even though I was in the middle of working on the PhD, I just did some literature research because I was interested to find out what the truth was and shared some of my findings with my, my old friends at Discovery, even though I wasn't working there at the time. Um, but we did some research into the med medical literature. And what we found is that actually in human beings, there are quite a number of examples of mutations that actually break specific genes in our bodies that are involved in carrying cholesterol and through our blood. And when those genes are broken, the result is guess what? Lowering the cholesterol. So exactly as Michael Behe predicted, there is a medical genetic basis for the, his prediction that you could break these genes in polar bears 
yet lower the cholesterol in their blood, which allows them to eat this fatty diet. So obviously, it's still not known exactly what is going on at the genetic level in, in uh, polar bears. Michael Behe made this very funny point that it's difficult to do experiments on polar bears because they get quite grumpy when you go up to them and try to take their blood. But hopefully someday somebody <laughs> will be able to do this research and find out exactly at the genetic level what is happening in polar bears. But at the very least, what we found was that it is Behe's theory is plausible. And it's a plausible model for uh, what is going on in polar bears, that it actually results from breaking genes at, at the molecular level. Um, Behe also has a new book that just came out called A Mousetrap for Darwin. This, this book has just come out in the last couple months. And this is basically an anthology collection of numerous responses from Michael Behe to critics. Um, one of the things that happened when Behe's book Darwin's Devol Darwin Devolves came out in 2019 is the journal Science, one of the top journals in the world, actually wrote a very serious but quite negative and critical review of the book. But just for Behe's book to be reviewed in Science was a big deal. And one of the things they said in that book is that Behe does not deal with critics. And so I would encourage folks who believe this crazy claim from his critics that Behe doesn't respond to critics to read his book, A Mousetrap for Darwin. And you will find hundreds of pages of Michael Behe responding to critics. So anyway, I would just recommend that book. And I just wanted one more time to say thank you to Casey Luskin for being here. It is incredibly encouraging what you are all doing uh, in the world of intelligent design and in science. So thank you again. Um, and thank you for listening. We'll see you back here next week in the Universe Next Door.